How's everybody doing? Yeah. Hey, are you are you Tennessee fans okay? Like <laughs> there was some shellacking last night, right? Uh, you know, Josh Brooker's a huge Bulldogs fan, so if you want to send him some hateful email, you probably should this week. So, uh, uh, you guys don't want to hear me bust on Tennessee. So, um, okay, so two things. One, um, if you haven't seen these yet, I don't think Corey said anything about them. These are our little, I was mowing the grass a couple of weeks ago, and I said uh, in, my, in my head, I was like, there is so much meanness and division and hatred, and people just fight over everything right now, and I'm just kind of tired of it, and so I, I called Corey Drake, and I said, hey, I want the cheesiest I love you bumper sticker you can possibly come up with, and so it's an I, a heart, and a you, um, and these are free. They're just, they're at all the communion things, and they're out there, and you can have as many of these as you like as long as you'll stick them on something where people can see it all the time, like the back of your car or in your office or whatever. If you do that, though, we have our website here, so don't drive like a maniac or, you know, <laughs> say bad words to people on the freeway or, you know, try to run people off the road. Uh, if you're going to do that, don't stick one of these on your car. Um, but if you're going to be a cool, level-headed, Christian-esque driver, you should stick that on the back of your car. So I just want to be on my way to work and see one of these and just be like, I love you too. You know, like, I just, I, I, I think these are just really happy and, and you should take a couple and stick them places. So uh, that's one thing. The second thing is this. Um, I usually hang out and talk for a long time after all four services as long as I can, and today I'm going to dip out, and the reason why is uh, Thursday I had, I had surgery under my arm, so if you see me fidgeting with my arm a little bit, it's because I'm just very uncomfortable, and uh, I had a mass under my arm, and, um, and they had to make a one-inch incision when I had no thing to numb it, and I was not asleep, I was awake, so that was the worst pain ever. So uh, it's bad when your doctor looks at you and says, buddy, this is going to hurt. And I was like, awesome. So uh, the nurse that was in the room, I said, hey, where are you going to be? And she said, where do you need me to be? And I said, holding my hand on this side of me. And she did. And I, I thought I was going to break her hand because um, I held it so firmly as this guy cut into my armpit and it hurt. So um, anyways, uh, I'm on a couple of different medications. So um, mentally, I'm about half here right now, so, but I'm going to do my best to work through the book of Acts in chapter 4, and um, we'll see what happens. You're my fourth go at it, and I've made it so far. So uh, here we are. So I'm, I don't think I'm rude or, you know, I'm escaping to my green room to eat, you know, just red M&Ms or something crazy like that. I'm just, I'm going to my car, and I'm going home, and I'm going to sleep. So that's what I'm going to do. So if you have not been here, We've been in the book of Acts. We took a break last weekend to baptize 116 people, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And um, just some really great stories in that too. It wasn't just the amount of baptisms. It was just the, the stories behind the baptisms. Had one guy get baptized at the 11 because uh, um, he wasn't a believer and he was watching the live stream because his wife was watching the live stream at the nine. I talked him baptism. And he said, we got to go there, and I got to get baptized. And he came and got baptized. How cool is that, right? So um, that was neat. But um, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 4 today. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't, it's okay. You got a notes handout. And if you have a smartphone, the Version app has everything on there. But if you have a Bible, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Now, if you have never heard of the book of Acts, it's, it's pretty simple in what it makes up and what it kind of compiles um, the first four books in the New Testament are the life and teachings of Jesus, okay? Jesus is 33 years on earth, his teaching, his instructions to his followers. 
The book of Acts is simply his followers taking the teachings of Christ and going out and implementing them. That's essentially what they are. And we see that a lot of amazing things happen. People are healed. Lots of people come to know the Lord. A lot of neat things happen during this time. When we were talking about Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church and the infilling of the Holy Spirit from God to his people. Acts chapter 3, uh, we see that a couple of the guys, Peter and John, go out and there is a man who has never been able to walk who is miraculously healed and gets up and walked, and that draws a lot of attention. And then right now in Acts chapter 4, it continues the same story as these men are teaching within the temple walls, and now the highest level people in culture and society have now taken notice of what these disciples are doing. But a couple of weeks ago in chapter 3, we talked about this. We asked ourselves the questions, is God has put people in our lives and situations in our life, are we taking advantage? Are we seizing the opportunities that God has put in our life, right? People around us who are hurting all the way around us, all over the place, are we seizing opportunities to show them the love of Christ, to pray for them, to, to be there for them, to help them up, if you will? This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that we must prepare to engage society with love and generosity. Um, unless your head is, is very deeply buried in the sand, I think all of us will agree uh, that culture and society right now is a mess. In my 38 years of living, I just don't think I've seen the divisiveness, the brokenness, the, the hurting that is going on, especially in our country. I've just never witnessed anything like this. And um, it's very broken and it's very messed up right now. And we are called as Christians to confront that mess and offer a solution to the mess. Okay? That's what we're called to do. So we're going to go through chapter four. I'm going to pray and um, we'll see what happens. Okay? All right. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. God, keep your hand on me today. Lord, just give me the strength, Father, to, to deliver this word with clarity and, and get all the way through this. And um, I just thank you, Lord. You're so good to me. And Thank you, God, for keeping your hand on me. Jesus, I pray that you keep your hand on everyone in this room, that you open up their eyes and ears. Lord, help us to absorb your word and apply your word. God, we pray for every single church in our city. We pray for every single nonprofit in our city, that they be blessed and that they advance your gospel. Lord, we love you, and we just pray that today honors you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read a little bit, and I'll do my best to break it down. Here we go. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of the dead using Jesus as an example. So they seized them and put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men, that included all people, not just men, came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, this question kind of frames the whole chapter, all right? So if you were with us for chapter 3, the story of chapter 3 just rolls right into chapter 4. It, it, it doesn't really stop. And there were several groups of people that did not like the advancement of Jesus' teachings. One of those groups, we'll talk about all three in here in a second, but one of those three groups is a group called the Sadducees. 
It's important to know who the Sadducees are because Annas and Caiaphas, the two most powerful men in Jerusalem, one of them, Caiaphas, had Jesus crucified, were both Sadducees. Now, Sadducees were different. They believed in God, but they believed the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament wasn't a person, but it was an idea. It was just kind of a philosophy. They did not believe in an afterlife, and they did not believe in angels and demons. I'm kind of confused why they believed in God at all, right? No afterlife, no angels, no demons, no Messiah, but that's what the Sadducees believed. The reason why it's important to know that is because when Peter and John showed up, they started preaching a message that contradicted everything the Sadducees believed. They brought a message of a literal physical savior, personal savior, Jesus, the resurrected from the dead and used angels to communicate to two women that, they had, that he had risen from the dead and they went off and told everyone else. This is everything the Sadducees did not believe in. So their response to this message was they took Peter and John threw them in jail overnight, and in the course of time that this was going on, the church had gone from 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2 to now another 2,000 are added, so now we have about 5,000 Christians hanging out in Jerusalem, which was a pretty substantial number in that city. Okay, so in chapter 4, we also see the birth of the persecution of the church. Now we're starting to see physical opposition to the people who teach from Jesus' teachings, right? Now we're starting to see the physical opposition. But notice in the face of this persecution, the church doesn't slow down. It keeps steamrolling forward. Now there's an interesting thing about, about the Christian faith. Whenever there is heavier persecution, we tend to see greater growth of the Christian movement. In the United States, Christianity is on the decline. They close somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,500 churches a year in the United States. So we're seeing less and less Christianity in the United States. We're seeing more and more of it in Africa, in Asia, in parts of Russia, places where there is heavy persecution. We're seeing Christianity just explode. Now, this has always been the case. One of the second century Christian writers, he was a Roman African writer, a man named Tertullian wrote this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He meant the more and more you kill us, the more and more we're going to grow. And that's been the truth all throughout history. The more people have tried to eliminate Christianity, the more it has just exploded and spread. So there are three groups of people that did not like the followers of Jesus, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. These were the elders, the rulers, and the law keepers, not just of religion, but of government, virtually of every corner of Jewish culture, these men were in charge. Now, the men that are mentioned by name in here, Honest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, these guys, they were more than likely all related. We know Caiaphas and Honest are related, father and son-in-law, but all of these men were more than likely related. So we see that all of society, culture, religion was run by one family. There was a lot of nepotism involved, a lot of corruption involved. And at the end of this part that I read, they asked Peter and John kind of the question that frames out the rest of our lesson today, by what power or name did this man get healed and by what power or name are you teaching under? That was their greatest concern. Of course, you had this healed man that hadn't been able to walk for 40 years, and now he's like dancing in the temple, right? That concerned them. But the thing that really concerned them is, what kind of theology are you teaching? Whose name are you teaching this under? So they threw Peter and John in jail. And we can imagine when Peter and John were sitting in jail, 
all of the words of Jesus started running back through their head, right? All the things they had heard him say for three and a half years. And the one that I think they probably thought of the most was this. Jesus looked at his followers and said, listen, one day they're going to hate you. But if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. And now they are catching this hatred that Jesus caught before they crucified him. Okay? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12 is vitally important. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Vitally important. So it says that Peter was filled again with the Holy Spirit. What we see here is that being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't just a one-time thing. It should be a recurring thing in the life of the Christian. So Peter was more than happy to answer the question, by whose name or by what power are you doing this? A, because he knew the answer. B, he was now full of the Holy Spirit and he was ready to rock and roll, right? So look at what Jesus has done to this guy, Peter. Peter used to be a coward. He was uneducated. He was just a fisherman. He's never spoken publicly. Now he stands in front of the most powerful people in the nation, and he is eloquently laying down the truth of Jesus Christ in front of these men. Look at that. And so Peter gets a little snarky, a little snarky. There are times that we need to be a little snarky as we see in the Bible. Jesus got a little snarky. Peter gets a little snarky. Sometimes people get a little snarky and the situation calls for that. So Peter looks and he says, oh, you're talking about this guy, right? Oh, the guy that's never been able to walk and he's standing right next to me healthy. Oh, this guy. You're wondering what healed this guy, right? So he's being a little over the top with this. And he says, well, it was the name of Jesus Christ that healed this guy, right? Oh, and by the way, you guys had Jesus killed and that didn't work either. He resurrected from the grave, right? So he's getting a little, little snarky there. Now, again, there are times when a dash of sarcasm works, right? But we need to be extremely careful, guys. And this is something I probably need to work on. We need to be extremely careful to make sure that we use tact and respect when we talk to people, especially non-believers, right? Here's the other thing though. We also need to be very straightforward. If anyone asks you why you have any success in your life, we need to be very clear. It's because of Jesus Christ. Why is your marriage good? It's not me, man. It's because we trust Jesus Christ. Why are your finances good? God has blessed us. Why is your church growing? Because God is willing, right? All the credit needs to go to Jesus Christ. And so Peter starts preaching a little bit because that's kind of what he's becoming, right? He's becoming a preacher. And he quotes Psalms 118. And the reason why he quotes this is it alludes to the fact that the, the creator of the universe, the Old Testament God, has manifested himself in Jesus Christ. So what happened was this. You ever met those people that said, well, if God would just show up and shake my hand, I'd believe in him. God's done that before. He has showed up to earth. He shook people's hands. You know, he hugged people. He healed people. He raised the dead. And people still didn't believe in him. So whenever people say, if God would just show up, God's already done that. And it didn't work for everybody. 
So Peter says this, the stone that you claim to, to, to have known about, right? And the stone that you cast aside, that was actually the cornerstone. So Jesus that you cast aside and had killed, he was everything. He is the creator God. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Paul said that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. And when God came to earth, they didn't notice him. They were too wrapped up in religion to notice God. That's what was going on at that moment. And so he even takes it a step further. And guys, this is where Christianity gets divisive. This is where Christianity becomes offensive. Most of the world loves the idea of, of Jesus, the, the champion of the underdog who fed the poor and helped the downtrodden and was very progressive when it came to women and leadership. And they love that Jesus. But when it comes to the deity of Jesus, when it comes to the exclusivity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and no one ever gets to the Father except through me. The exclusivity of Jesus bothers people. And Peter echoed this and said, there is no other way to be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. So in our day and age, it's very easy for people to say, I believe in God, this kind of conceptual thing that's off somewhere in the cosmos. But whenever we are specific about the God that we believe in, Jesus Christ, the Christian God, that's where lines get drawn, that's where people argue, that's where people get heavily offended, okay? It's over the name. So when they observe the boldness of Peter and John and realize that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we can't deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them, and they told them not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to speak or stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them, and they found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For the sign of a healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. It was showing how long this man had been paralyzed, right, and could not walk. So, as after Peter spoke with authority and eloquence and intelligence, the most educated, most powerful people in all of Israel looked at these men and they're like, wait a second, aren't these guys like fishermen? They haven't been to like Ivy League schools. They don't have all the credentials. They don't have a master's in divinity or a PhD in the Bible. What in the heck are these guys doing? Now, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with education. I'm very pro-education. I have a degree. My wife has a degree. We're, I'm all about education. That's great. There's nothing wrong with credentials, right? And milestones and education. Nothing wrong with those things. But we must remember our real authority and strength come from spending time with Jesus. That's where our real authority, our real strength come from, is when we have an intimate relationship with God. We read the Word, we pray. 
Now, it's hard to argue the facts. So again, they had this healed man up there, right? They were speaking these powerful words, quoting the Old Testament, and it was hard to deny what had happened. This guy had been healed. So the, the Sanhedrin council had nothing else. What do we do now? So what they did is they're like, we got to do some damage control. How about we pass a law that says they cannot talk about Jesus anymore? That'll fix it, right? And so they said, hey, Peter, John, you guys are not allowed to do this anymore. We just passed a law that made it illegal to talk about Jesus's name. So here's the thing about that, guys. Let's talk about our day and age. We are called in the Bible, regardless of how much you like or don't like our president or our government or our local government or whatever, we are called in Romans 13 to honor and respect the law of the land and the government of the land. That's what we're called to do. And whenever people talk about how bad Trump is or Obama or Bush or however many presidents you want to go back, listen, go back and read the book of Daniel. Daniel not only worked for the government, he respected the government, and his government built a 50-foot statue of the guy who was in charge and made everyone bow down to it or they were thrown into an oven. We have not had that happen yet in the United States to my knowledge, right? So we're still doing a lot better than Daniel's time, and Daniel found a way not only to respect and work in the government, he actually saved one of the leaders that he was under. Crazy stuff, right? So anyways, we are to follow the law of the land unless it impedes our ability to speak the truth. Let me give you a modern example of that. 50 years ago in the United States, black people couldn't drink out of the same water fountains as white people in most states in the country. That was a law that was broken a million times by protesters, and it should have been because it was a human rights issue, and people should have stood up and fought against that law. It wasn't a godly law. It wasn't something that was okay. It impeded the truth. It impeded fairness, and it should have been broken. So laws like that, we are called to break. And so there, especially when things are told about our Christianity, about our faith, if laws are passed that we cannot speak in public, we continue to speak in public. And so Peter and John basically looked at the Sanhedrin, their lawmakers, they said, you can pass whatever laws you want, but we will not remain silent about what we've seen and what we've heard about Jesus Christ. So here's the thing, and man, everyone, every single time I talk about this stuff, someone will get offended by this, but, but I just don't. I don't care much anymore. So over government, over philosophy, over culture, even over religion and denomination, the truth of the Word of God takes precedent over all those things, over all of those things. Do we honor those things? Of course we do. But over all of those things is the Word of God. And there will always be intimidation by the people that think they hold the power, there will always be intimidation to quiet people from speaking the truth. This has started ever since there's been a thing called government, ever since there's been a thing called religion. So the government, the religion, the culture tried to intimidate the followers of Jesus in the first century, and it did not work. It has never worked with Christianity. So here's the thing, guys. People will tell you that you're too liberal, you're too conservative, you're too open-minded, you're too close-minded, you're too pessimistic, you're too optimistic. It's impossible to make everyone happen. So here's what you should do. Stay in the uncomfortable counterculture words of Jesus Christ and let him fight your battles, right? Let him do it. If you will just hang out in the word of God, I give you my word, you will be okay. Listen, here's the other thing. You're not called to impress anyone around you. You're called to impress one person, Jesus. That is it. 
That's the only person the Christian is called to impress and to make proud is Jesus Christ, okay? Let me move on. There's a soapbox there, but I'm not gonna get on it today. I just don't have the energy today. <laughs> After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel all assembled against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your slaves that they may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healings, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. So after Peter and John were released, remember, these two fishermen who were uneducated stood in front of the most powerful people in the country, and they held their ground, and they couldn't do anything to Peter and John, so they let them go. Peter and John probably come back with a little bit of swagger in their step, right? And say, hey, guess what? We just beat the Sanhedrin, you know, like we just kind of won this battle. And at this time, there's now thousands of Christians in Jerusalem, and they saw this as a huge victory, not just because they beat the Sanhedrin, they saw it as a huge victory because King David had prophesied centuries ago that all of these different groups of people would rally against the people of God and they would not win. And we saw that this was taking place. And the fact that the suffering that they were going through had been predestined, let them know that they were in the will of God. Listen, all Christians will suffer on some level. All Christians will suffer on some level. It's going on globally right now. We don't really see it a lot in the United States, but if Revelation is correct, and I believe it is, one day we will. All Christians will suffer in some form or fashion. And we shouldn't be afraid of this. We shouldn't be bothered by this. It's an honor to suffer for the Word of God. It's an honor to suffer for Jesus' name, okay? And so as the believers prayed together, they acknowledged that God was involved. Like he wasn't distant, right? It's not some just like conceptual creator that's off in the cosmos somewhere. God is personal. And he saw what they were going through. And they said, God, just like you empowered Jesus to do these things, empower us to do these things. But by the name of Jesus, we can see healings and we can preach your message and great things can happen. So what we learn about God and we should already know this at this point in the story, is that God is personal. He's not just out there somewhere. We don't just worship an, an intelligent designer that's distant, that started the clock of time and stepped away. That's not it. We worship a personal Savior, one that's involved in every single, even minuscule thing in our life. Even in the suffering, Jesus is there, and He knows what's going on. So if we understand that God is a personal God, we also have to understand that God is a God that holds us accountable. Now, this is a part we don't like, right? We love the Jesus hugs us all the time, Jesus. We don't love the Jesus that calls us out on our garbage, Jesus, right? 
So if we understand that God is not abstract, but he is personal, we also have to understand that the closer we get to him, the more we're held accountable for the knowledge that Jesus has given us. In fact, Jesus says that you're gonna be held accountable for every word and every deed. Now, one of the things about Jesus, he came, of course, to die on the cross and forgive us of our sins, but Jesus also came to give us clarity. Not that the Old Testament was messed up or broken. The Old Testament is fine, but people misunderstood the meanings of the Old Testament. So Jesus showed up, and that's why he said things like this. He says, you've heard it this way, but this is what I say, which means they had misconstrued what the Bible said. Jesus would also say the kingdom of heaven is like and then he'd present a very simple fact, right? A very simple parable. Jesus came to give us clarity, and we are now held responsible for that clarity. So just like God had a purpose for Jesus' suffering on the cross, Christians will also suffer, and there is a purpose for that as well. And whatever the purpose is, God is still in control. He still knows what we're going through. He's still good. Notice in verse 29, this is so important. I don't know why I didn't make it the hot pink or another color or something. But when they were going through their suffering, notice the Christians, they prayed for motivation. They prayed for strength. They prayed for courage. They did not pray to be delivered from the suffering. They said, let's engage it. Let's, let's do this. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be brutal. Jesus said he's gonna send us out like sheep among the wolves. I don't wanna shy away from that but God, I need your strength to make it through it. That's what they prayed. They didn't pray for deliverance of it. They prayed for strength to go through it, to go through the problem. And God responded. After they prayed, similar to Acts chapter two, it says the room shook. They were all refilled with the Holy Spirit. There that is again, right? People mean refilled with the Holy Spirit. And they didn't speak in tongues this time. It says that they spoke God's message with boldness, that they were empowered by the word of God. And they went out and taught people the gospel. So we see at this point, one, God is not gonna leave us powerless. If you're worried about what you're gonna say, be filled with the Holy Spirit, ask God to give you the words, and God will give you the words. If you're afraid to have conversations and go out into sticky situations, God will take care of you as long as we are just dependent on Him. We must be refilled with the Holy Spirit in order to be effective Christians. Not just a one-time thing, we must be constantly refilled with the Holy Spirit. And we must pray and prepare because we know hard times are gonna come. We don't need to wait and respond after the hard times come. We need to be proactive and prepare for the impact, right? Now look at this next part. This next part completely shifts gears, okay? And I'll tell you why here in a second, but notice the shift in the story right here. Now, the large group of those who believed were in one mind and one heart, and no one said that any of their possessions were their own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For they were not a needy, there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, one of the, the one that the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned, brought the money, and laid it, the, it, laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's a big departure from what we've been talking about. 
Now, it's not the first time Luke, the author, has done that. He did it in Acts chapter 2. But why he did this is he wanted to remind us, the reader, right, that the church, hallmarks of the church, should be community, unity, and generosity. These should be hallmarks of Christianity. Not only did they share with each other, not only did they show concern for each other, they had the same passion, the same heart, and they had the same mind, which means they had the same mission. And here was the mission of the church at this time. It wasn't to build a big stupid building. It wasn't to make a rock star pastor or have the best worship band or have the coolest podcasts or whatever. That was not the mission of the church. The mission of the original church was to go share the love of Jesus Christ with the people around them. That was their mission. I think we've lost that to a certain extent in our day and age. Their mission was to go out and to touch people's hearts with the message of Jesus Christ. That was their goal. So some people can take passages like this, and there's many of these in the Bible, and if they're not careful, they can get a little imbalanced, right? This is how cults start. This is how Waco, Texas starts. This is how Jim Jones starts, right? The, hey, all you guys need to sell all your houses and lay your equity down at my feet, right? That's how that, which, I mean, you're welcome to do if you want to, but anyways, that's how <laughs> stuff like this happens. They read parts like this, and they don't balance it out. It's not that we're all supposed to sell our land and put the equity at the pastor's feet. That's not what it's necessarily telling us to do. It's the heart behind it. And all throughout the, uh, throughout the Bible, we see that the Word of God is balanced. Listen, Christianity is not a cult. It's not this exclusive group of people that no one else is welcome. We are to be inclusive, and we are to treat other Christians as family. Are we a country club? No, but the people in this room you should, sp- you, you should give extra regard to. If there's a person in this room who is starving, right, that they cannot have enough food on the table or that they cannot have enough to, to pay their utilities, us in this room should pull together and make sure that the basic needs of other Christians are met first and foremost, okay? Are we an exclusive club? No, but we need to take care of each other like family. We're responsible to share with each other. Many times the Bible says this. Even if we have to sell possessions to make sure others have the basic needs, we need to do that. But the Bible also says that if a man doesn't want to work, he shouldn't be allowed to eat. So are we to give people food? Yes. Are we to enable bad behavior? No. Balance. Balance. It says that we're called to make a social impact out in the world doing social justice, that we are to go out and make an impact on the homeless and the downtrodden and injustices that are done to different nationalities and things like that. We are to do that, but we are not to sacrifice the gospel for that. We cannot compromise our beliefs for those things. It's all about balance. And the only way to find balance is the Holy Spirit, that's the HS. I even had room to type that out. That is just sheer laziness on my part, guys. I'm really sorry. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and it gives us discernment so we can achieve a balanced Christian walk. There's a lot of common sense in the Bible, guys, and the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, gives us discernment to have that balance. We also see that these Christians didn't claim that they owned anything. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we all shack up together in a hippie commune. That's not necessarily what that's talking about. But Luke writes that no one said that any of their possessions were their own, but instead had everything in common. This isn't socialism. This is acknowledging that everything we have is because God let us borrow it for a while. 
That's what that is, that is, that's what that's acknowledging. The real Christian knows that their house, their cars, their bank account, even their family, their spouse, all the things that we have, it's because God is gracious enough to let us not possess those things, but steward those things. Stewarding is different than possession. Stewarding is when we manage someone else's possessions. Everything I have is God's. I'm just given the, 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 the management of that. And in such a consumerist culture that we live in, stewardship versus possession is still a very hard thing, even for Christians, to wrap their head around. Very hard for us to wrap our head around. But we need examples of this. We need people who have done great things in the name of Jesus and seen great things come from it. So Luke mentions a guy. So as he's writing this, he's like, hey, there's a guy named Joseph. If you don't think anyone's doing this, right? Sell their property and give it to someone else. There's a guy named Joseph. He was from the tribe of Levi. Some of us call him Barnabas. And he was so gracious that he sold his property and the equity from his property, he laid at the apostles' feet so people could have the basic necessities. Now, we need to be modeling the heart of Christ so that others can be encouraged and others can be inspired, not so we can receive glory, but so Christ can receive glory. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a story. You're the 11 o'clock, so I can just talk for hours, right? So the other day, um, there's a couple here that I really, really love, and I'm going to embarrass them because I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Boone and Kira Whitaker that come to this church, and um, Kira gave me a call, and she said, hey, I want you to baptize me. Uh, they live out in the sticks, like, like, they're like out in the woods sticks, right? Like, Cell phones don't work out there at their house. And she said, I want you to baptize me in our rock quarry. And of course, my first thought is not, thank you, God, that she's, you know, getting baptized. It was, are there snakes in rock quarries? So, um, <laughs> so we went out to their house and, and my wife and my kids, and they got a couple of kids about the same age as ours. And we went out there and, you know, we went out in this rock quarry and I made Boone, her husband, go out there with me and kind of splash the water to make sure no snakes got around me. That's how much of a wuss I am, guys. So go out there and we, we pray together and, and Kira gets baptized and we go back to the house and they made us dinner, which was really cool. And I go to the refrigerator to get something out of the refrigerator in their house and they have five Compassion International kids on their fridge. I was like, holy smokes, you guys support five kids? And they're like, yeah, you know, we just do that. Our kids call them their brothers and sisters and, and they're just real nonchalant about it, right? And I was like, that's amazing, you know? And I was sitting here thinking like, you know, we've supported one, like maybe we can cut some corners and support too, you know? And, and so the reason I'm telling you the story is we need to hear what other people are doing. And they would be embarrassed right now. Like, like, like they, 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 just, they don't want that kind of intention, but we need to hear that maybe if we were to sell one of our TVs in the house, or maybe instead of the $30,000 car, we got the $20,000 car and we use that 10 grand to make sure that kids have basic necessities. Guys, you know that there's tons of homeless children in Murfreesboro. I know you don't see them on the streets like you do in third world countries. They're living in run-down motels where there's prostitution and drugs and it's awful living conditions, but they don't have a stable home. We have dozens of those in Murfreesboro. And my buddy Joel that runs Endure Athletics has to spend the majority of his time raising money. And I'll tell you what, that's a travesty. That's a shame. With all these multi-million dollar buildings in this town and we can't support a guy that helps out homeless children, what in the heck is wrong with Christianity? What is wrong with us? And listen, all these nonprofits, and that's just one, we got tons of them in this town that are fantastic and half their resources go to begging Christians for money. Christians that drive expensive cars and live in nice homes, which is fine 
if there weren't starving children that were homeless in our community. So again, guys, we need to hear stories of people who are sacrificing, like my buddy Joel, who's going to sell his home, take all the equity so he can continue to do this ministry for another year. That's what he's doing. And I hope he doesn't get mad for me saying that. But you need to go to Endure Athletics' website. You need to give to that. You need to go to Portico's website. You need to go to all the different great nonprofits in our town. And even if everyone in this church gave 10 bucks today, that's $30,000, right? We've got 3,000-something people that come to this church. If we all just gave 10 bucks, look at the impact it would make on our community. All right, let me keep going. So here's my point. I got off track there a little bit. Guys, by the way, everything I say that's offensive today, if you send me an email, I'm just, I was really drugged up during the 11 o'clock. So that's, I, don't, I don't even remember what you're talking about, right? <laughs> even though it's recorded. Uh, here's the problem, guys. If you look around the world right now, and if you look around the nation, man, even if you look around our city, I'm not trying to hammer on it. I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to be controversial. There is so much anger and hatred and, and selfishness, and there's so much divisiveness. Guys, we lose friends over football. We lose friends if, if a bunch of overpaid, oh, I need a, mm, if a bunch of football players don't stand up for the national anthem, we're going to lose friends over that, right? We're going to divide as brothers and sisters in Christ over a game? We're going to do that? We are so broken, we're so angry, we're so divided. We are hemorrhaging as a society. Now listen, and again, this is where people get offended. But if you're waiting on a government or a new product by Apple, or if you're waiting on some social institution or something like that to fix society, we're gonna be waiting until Christ comes back. Because Christ never intended for those organizations to fix society. It was you and I. We were the ones commissioned by God himself to go make a positive impact on the world around us. And we must prepare ourselves not to run away from the mess, not to act like the mess doesn't exist, but we are called to insulate ourselves with the Holy Spirit, not isolate ourselves, insulate ourselves with the Holy Spirit, and we are to walk right into the mess. We, to, we are to engage the mess. And listen, Everyone can identify the problem. Facebook has taught us this, right? Here's the problem. Great, Einstein. What's the solution? And the solution was given to us. The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the solution. And we are called to bring that into the mess. Here's the thing, guys. The reason why we are called to bring it into the mess is because people who are believers of Jesus Christ are the image bearers of God. We are Jesus embodied on earth right now. doesn't mean we're equal to Jesus Christ. That's not what I mean. Jesus ascended, filled us with his spirit, so now we are, the cliche saying, the arms and legs of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are called to bring the light, the good news, the salt, healing. We are called to bring peace and harmony. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, that we are called to bring some calmness to the chaos that is our culture right now. Now, if we're going to be the image bearers, we need to be honest, honest. 
I'm so sick of this prosperity feel-good gospel that just runs rampant in our country right now, right? It's your best life now, right? Everyone's teeth are white, suit is pressed, car is nice. Everything's good all the time if you just become a Christian. Just so everyone's clear on this, that's a lie. The road that we have chosen, the Christian road, can be a brutal one. I would love some of these prosperity pastors to meet some of the men and women who are in the Colosseum as lions tore them apart for Jesus' name. Hey, it's all good. It's not always good. Sometimes it hurts to be a Christian. Sometimes it's a rough road to walk down. And that prosperity gospel is offensive to me especially when my Savior lived as a homeless man for almost 33 years. It's offensive to me. So we need to know going into this that the road that we've chosen to walk is not an easy road. It's a better road. It's a more fulfilling road, and it's going to be fulfilling for eternity, but it's not an easy road. We also need to have the courage to speak the truth in love. Some of you speak the truth, but not in love. We need to speak the truth in love. Let me give you an example, and I'm, I'm not perfect by any means. For three years, my wife and I lived in a loft apartment on Lytle Street, real close to the square. We lived on the square before it was cool to live around the square. So we were living in Lytle Street in this loft apartment. There was a man that lived below us that I was really good friends with, loved this guy. He was in his mid-50s. Uh, my wife loved him to death. I'd go downstairs, and he'd drink a beer, and I'd drink a root beer, and we'd sit and talk on the, on the patio, and we just really good friends, really loved this guy. I was working for another church at the time as a youth pastor, and so he knew my beliefs, and we would just talk a lot. And, one day he comes up to my apartment and I had a big Bible sitting on my coffee table and he sits down and he'd been crying really hard and he said, Corey, there's these things that I've been struggling with sexually and he just told me about the lifestyle that he lives and just kind of really confessed it all and brought it all out to me, which I knew most of these things anyways before he ever told them to me, but he lays it all out and he says, Corey, what does this book say about my lifestyle? So I, I, I told him. I showed him the passages, there's six of them that pertain to that subject, and I showed him all six, and I said, this is what the Bible says about that. And then I closed my Bible, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I looked at him, and I said, look, let me tell you this, regardless of how you live, I love you. Regardless of what decision you make after this day, you're always welcome in my apartment, you're welcome to have dinner with me and my wife, your partner's welcome to come up and have dinner with me and my wife, we love you, even if we disagree on this, and even after what I told you the Bible says, I love you, but I love you enough to show you, to tell you. And we have remained friends to this day. This is the way you communicate the truth, but you do it in a way that shows love and grace and respect to those around you. We must also empty ourselves of sin if we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The reason why the Holy Spirit hasn't been activated in a lot of your lives in here is because there's some stuff that's cluttering up your soul. Listen, guys, I don't know, you guys probably think I'm like super legalistic when I say this stuff. There are some things you don't need to watch. There are some books you don't need to read. There are some music you don't need to listen to. Oh, Corey, that's legalistic. Jesus said that the things we take in through our eye contaminate our entire soul. Amen. Jesus said that. Jesus also said that we're not to put any evil things in front of our eyes. So we need to be very, very careful with that. And I think some of us don't find the joy in the Lord and we don't find the power that God wants us to have in our life because we have so much other stuff convoluting where the Holy Spirit should be. So we need to ask God to forgive us of our sins. We need to remove evil from in front of our eyes and our ears and being fed into our brain. And then the Holy Spirit can fill us up and empower us and help us. And we need to pray. We need to read the word of God. You guys need to have Christian friends. 
I want you to have a lot of non-Christian friends too, but you need to have Christian friends. You need to commune with other believers. You need to have people that if you run into them, you can say, man, brother, can you pray for me? Sister, can you pray for me? Like, and you can pray with each other and you can hold each other accountable. We need community. It's gonna become harder and harder and harder to be a Christian the closer that Jesus comes back. It says this in Hebrews 10, I believe, that we need community. We don't need to forsake this community. It is vitally important. We also need to steward well. Guys, and I'm not trying to be snarky or sarcastic, but if you have four TVs in your house and you're not sponsoring a Compassion Kid, sell two of those TVs. You can live without it. You can live without any of them. But sell a couple of those. Take that five or 600 bucks and support a child in another city or another country. Give them health insurance and give them food for a year. The price of one of those TVs, you could, man, if you bought a $1,000 TV, you could sponsor two kids for a year and give them food and give them health care. I'm just asking you, sacrifice a little bit. Steward a little bit. Share with others. Not just your money, but your time, your energy, your talents, the truth that you have. Share your testimony with people. People need to hear it. They need to hear the good news. They need to hear what God has done to you and for you. And we need to be benevolent. And here comes the hard one. We need to love and show respect to everybody. Everybody. Well, but I don't like those kind of people. Everybody. But they're terrorists. They're awful. They're hurtful. Everybody. The Bible says that it's easy for us to like people like us. It's easy to like other Christians. It's easy to like people with the same political affiliation. It's easy to like people that agree with you on everything. The Bible says, man, even non-believers do that. But Christians are called to do something greater than just like people like us. We are called to love people drastically different than us. Drastically different. And Jesus went so far in John chapter 13. He said, you will be known by your Facebook posts. You will be known as a disciple of me by your tattoos, by your bumper stickers. You will be known as a disciple of me by your big buildings and your fancy preachers and your awesome band. That's how you'll be known. No, Jesus said, you'll be known as one of my disciples by how you love each other. That's what Jesus said. How you love each other. In a world, guys, in a world that just needs someone to give them a hug sometimes, in a world that just needs someone at the office to say, man, do you need me to run any errands for you? Hey, I'm going to Starbucks. You want a coffee? Hey, you know, like, can I take you out to lunch today? In a world that just needs a little bit of peace, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of generosity for us to hold our tongues when we adamantly disagree with the right winger or the left winger or whatever their affiliation might be. What does all that arguing on Facebook do for us? Does that advance the kingdom of God? Does that make us better people? Is that iron sharpening iron? Has anyone, you ever gotten on there and just argued on Facebook and someone replied, oh, you're absolutely right. I've completely changed my ideology. <laughs> if that happens, you let me know. That has never happened. Never happened. We will be known as followers of Jesus Christ by how we treat people. And listen, if you don't have a love for people, you need to ask God to get a, a, put a love for people in you. You need to hit your knees. You need to find a place 
to sit there and, and talk to God and say, God, I love you. I struggle with people. And I give you my word. I did it in a prayer room about nine years ago. I said, God, I do not like people. Help me. And God put this passion in my heart for people. I love people. I'm not always the best. I'm not always the kindest. Man, I love people. And that's because God put that in my heart. There was a young man named Saul. People say, Corey, how can we love these people that believe different than us? Some of these people that believe different from us, Corey, they'll even hurt us. How can we love them? When they were building the mosque here in town, you wouldn't believe how many families we lost because I said, we're not going to hate Muslims. We're going to pray and love Muslims. In fact, we have a guy who's one of our elders. His name's Muhammad. Muhammad was once an Islamic imam. He was a pastor in the Islamic church. And he became a Christian. Now he sits as one of our elders at this church. A great man and a great wife, great family. I said that we're going to love Muslims at this church. And I had a man come up and tell me, I'm not going to do that. How dare you tell us to do that? And I said, we were told to love those that persecute us and pray for those that are our enemies. And he said, well, I'm not going to do it. And I just said, you are not a Christian. That's a good way to lose a congregate, by the way. <laughs> but I said, if you're not going to follow the words of Jesus, that's what they are. So again, there was a young man named Saul. This is a spoiler alert, my last story, and then I'll let you go. This young man named Saul and Acts chapter 7 was holding the coats of a bunch of people who were killing a Christian named Stephen, the first martyr in the Bible, the first person to die for Jesus' name. This young man named Saul did not believe the same beliefs as the Christians. He hurt people, he arrested people, he imprisoned people, and even had one killed. Now, this young man named Saul had an encounter with Jesus he went to a Christian's house and this Christian made him food and took care of him until his eyesight was restored. And that guy named Saul became the apostle Paul who wrote 70% of your New Testament. We need to be extremely careful when we put limitations on the grace of God. We need to be extremely careful when we say there are certain people we cannot love. Here's your homework. This week between now and next week, I'm gonna, there's going to be a test on this next week. <laughs> Just show someone that you love them. Not someone like you. I mean, that's fine. Do that too. But when you're at work, go out of your way to find someone and just say, hey, man, your day going well. I'm getting a cup of coffee. You want to go with me or can I pick you one up? Hey, I, you got some stuff printing on the printer. Can I grab it for you? Maybe buy a, a dozen donuts from Donut Country and walk into your office. I love you for that. Walk in, throw them on the table and be like, hey, I was just thinking of you guys. Here you go. Do something nice for someone. Listen, there is so much chaos in your world. There is so much division and disorder. There is so much anger and bitterness and hatred. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. Take a little bit of the Prince of Peace that we have in us and go into your workplace into your school, into your gym or your favorite coffee shop or where you buy groceries and just bring a little bit of heaven down from down, bring a little bit of heaven down to earth and insert that into the situation. That's what we're called to do. Well, Corey, what about the gospel? Hey, look, a bridge is built one plank at a time, guys. You'll get to the gospel with people, but they need to know you love them first. They need to know that you love them. Would you bow your heads with me? I've taken too much time. 
There is communion all the way around us. If you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, you're welcome to take communion. There'll be people up here on the right and left, men and women, if you need prayer for anything, please don't be afraid or embarrassed. Please let them pray for you. If you're in here and you're not a believer, I, I, I pray that you felt welcomed and invited, and I pray that you come back. I, I pray that this was a good experience for you. If you're in here and you're a Christian, I want you to pray that God gives you the wisdom this week, that he fills you up with his Holy Spirit, that you can go out and just touch someone's heart a little bit, even if it's just a donut or a cup of coffee. Go out and show people just some simple ways of love. They need you guys. This world, man, it is hurting. And they just need us to be calm and cool. They need us to show Jesus' heart. And I just pray that you do that this week. Father, Lord, we love you. God, as we ask you to forgive us of our sins, as we take communion and remember, God, what you've done for us on the cross, we pray, Lord, that you fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Pray that you send us out, God, and that we can just be a light that we can just show some people some love and some calmness, God, that we can show people some grace, that we can bring in some joy and some contentment to whatever situations we find ourselves in. God, don't deliver us from the mess, but prepare us to walk into the mess. Don't deliver us from the mess. Insulate us with the Holy Spirit so we can walk into the mess. We love you, God, and we thank you. Bless my brothers and sisters. Bless any non-believers in this room. It's by your name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. I hope you have a great week. Make sure you get one of those bumper stickers. Mm -hmm.